Often when 20th century people think about the Bible, they think about it and assume that it is a book of a bygone age and that it's written to people who've long since been dead and buried. Let me tell you, there's nothing that could be further from the truth than that. There's no power on earth that is so relevant and so recent and so current and so up-to-date as the Word of the Living God that we have contained here in the Word of God, the Bible. The Bible is as up-to-date as tomorrow morning's newspaper. It's as up-to-date as your latest breath. Each of you is breathing. The Bible is up-to-date as that latest breath. In 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 2, we have a specific reference of how it is not only current and how it is not only present in the sense of being a, a relevant current truth, but it's also a universal truth. Paul said to the Corinthians that not only was he writing this letter to the Corinthian brethren, but that he said, I'm addressing it to all of those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that means those of us here in Circe, that this letter is directed to you and me. So we find ourselves really brought intimately into a relationship with this very specific letter, the letter to the Corinthians, and also in a very special way we are brought into an intimate relationship with the entire Bible. This is your book. This is God's love letter to you. This is God's instructions to you. And these instructions are living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And any brief or even uh, superficial dealing with it will give you a, at least a suspicion that this book has something for your needs every day that you live. I've been studying it in, I think, at least increasing degrees of interest for some 20 years. And I have never yet come to one single disappointment in the power and ability of the Word of God to meet my everyday needs. You're in the what you think is the prime of your life. And I'm talking, well, I'm talking to all of you. Hubert, you think you're in the prime of your life. And you probably are. But you young people, you students, you think that you've already reached the prime of your life and you're really flourishing. Well, that's true. You are. And probably you have reached the very peak of your physical prowess or your physical maturity if you're 18 or so. But you know one day you're going to die, you're going to wrinkle, you're going to lose your hair, you're going to lose it. And I laugh at my boys, you know, they're sitting there and prep and they get all that hair down. I say, enjoy it while you've got it. <laughs> Friday morning at 7 o'clock, the phone rang and I was told that the father of one of our students here, Sue Foley, her 50-year-old father died of a heart attack last Thursday evening. Fifty years old. All flesh is as grass, and the glory thereof is of the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord abides forever. And you can count on it. Now, today, I want us to begin a series of lessons on Christian maturity. Someone asked me, as he noticed the title for this lesson here is Christian Immaturity. We're going to be studying the, the problem of Christian immaturity. He said, do you always have to be preaching on my problems? Well, I think all of us could say that. But I want us to notice this morning, the Corinthian Christians, as we began this series on Christian maturity, 
with this lesson on the problem of Christian immaturity. Three descriptions describe these people here at Corinth. They were called the Church of God. They were called the Sanctified in Christ Jesus. And they were called to be saints. The Church of God, Sanctified in Christ Jesus, and called to be saints. These are the descriptions that Paul gives these people and lays at their door as a description of their position before God. What a description that is. The church of God, sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. What else could you say about people in the way of a compliment? In fact, it causes us almost to think and to imagine, you know, these people must really be something special. They must be super saints. They must be outstanding Christian examples to the whole world. While they're sanctified, they're saints. These people are the church of God. You know, you stand back almost, if you were to read this the first, if you'd never known anything about the Corinthians, if you were to read it first, you'd think, mm-mm, I don't think I can measure up to these folks. These are super people. I don't, I'm, I'm just not that good. I'm inferior to these folks. But let me tell you, this description of Paul regards the standing of these people before God, what they were by the mercy and grace of God, in spite of what they were really, and it was a description of these people based not upon what they had done, either prior to their conversion, during their conversion, or after their conversion. What these descriptive phrases give is a description of these people's stand before God based upon the mercy that God had given to them and to this acceptance of God of sinners, this God who justifies the unjustifiable. Paul told Titus that when the goodness of God and his kindness toward man appeared, that he saved these people, not in or because of any works done in righteousness, which, which they did themselves, but according to his own mercy, which he poured out upon them richly in Christ Jesus, according to the regeneration or the washing of the new birth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, which he poured out upon them, saving them, justifying them, so that they might, might have the inheritance of the saints in light. All of this was done, and this that we're seeing here describes these people simply because of the fact that this is what God did for them in his mercy. And that's what he's done for you, every last one of you here, who has committed yourself to Jesus Christ. God has made you the church of God. He's made you sanctified in Christ Jesus, and he's called you to be saints. Isn't that fantastic? Isn't it amazing what he's done for us and what it is that we don't really have to do for ourselves? And this is stressed all the way through the New Testament. This was the people stand before God because of his mercy. This was their position. This was their identity. But what was their character? Oh, their character, yeah. Well, I'll tell you, their character was a whole lot different from what their identity was. Their character is also highlighted in three particular expressions or phrases that tell you what they were in character. Number one, it said these people were fighting. They had among them strife and division and jealousy. These people were plagued with sins of attitude. I don't know what your sin is, but if it's a sin of attitude, then Paul is talking to you here. These people were arguing, they were bickering, they were fighting, they were in a continual, seemingly a continual strife, and they were always at each, one, at each other's throat or at one another's throat, and they were always after each other. So many times... Such fighting as this simmers underneath the surface, 
until something arises that can appear to be a religious issue. And then I've seen brethren just leap on that religious issue that they, if they don't create it, they foster it. They leap on this religious issue, and then they let all the vile and the, what is the word, vitup, what is that word? Vituperance come out, all the, the uh, yick, all that vileness, you know, they just let it come out, and they just, and you know, they do it under the guise of being a religious defender of the Lord. Why, they're the devil himself waiting on an opportunity to take something of the Scriptures and beat somebody to death with it. These people were doing that. They were so proud. They were so uh, a distinctive feeling in the fact that some of them had been baptized by Paul, others by Apollos, and others by Cephas. They had these sins of attitude. They were even going to law against each other. They were taking each other to court, dragging each other by the curve, you know, the neck, and taking them and saying, Here, you're going to pay me or I'm going to know why. Or you've offended me and I'm going to sue you. Did you ever hear of that happening in the church? Well, I heard of it just this past week. And I heard of a case just this same week where one man, in trying to decide with another group of men about how to build a church building, was so opposed to a T-shaped building that he spent some one night four hours arguing with the brethren against the T-shaped building. The next week, they found out that because of the size of the property, they couldn't build a T-shaped building anyway. They were going to have to build another one. And that night, he spent four hours arguing for it. And the preacher said to him, you're going to answer for every last argument that you've given. You're going to answer to God for every argument and for every disruptive moment that you've caused this church. And he told these brethren, if you're going to let this man run the church, you can run it without me. I'm leaving. And he left. And thank God they put a quietus on the man. Sins of attitude. But there was also a sin of immorality. He said, there's among you, it is, it's commonly reported that there is actually fornication among you and of a kind that is not even reported among the pagans. There was a man living with his father's wife. The word holos here is used to indicate either an overall practice by the entire church or that the practice of the few was generally known and accepted by the whole church. And I think that's probably the case here because he only mentions one example of this outrageous kind of immorality, this man living with his own father's wife, but he uses the word holos here in a sense that, why, it's just wide open, it's broad, open daylight practice. And he said the Gentiles, the heathen, the pagan, they don't even act like this. But it was in the church. Do you find it strange to think that the church could have such kind or such immorality as this in the church? Do you find this sexual looseness that was prevalent or that was practiced in the church at Corinth, do you find that it's strange to you to think that that could happen in the church of the Lord? Well, then open your eyes and look around, because the church of God today has been contaminated by just such a sexual looseness as we see practiced in the church in Corinth. Don't you know those brethren were ashamed of that man? Don't you know that when people talk it or brought it up, they were just completely chagrined to the point of absolute uh, despair? No. They were kind of proud about it. Paul said, and you didn't mourn. He said, actually, you were boasting about it. You're kind of puffed up over it. Look at it. Look over Joe. Watch him. That rascal, he can get away with anything. Paul said, you better not boast over it. He said, you should have mourned over it. So what we have was one man living in sin and the rest of them ignoring it or endorsing it. That was the kind of situation these people were living in. First of all, they had sins of attitude, hard to live with, cantankerous, 
argumentative, divisive, jealous, strifeful, or they were immoral, sexually loose, promiscuous. But you know what was the cause of all of it? He said, your babies, your little babies. He said, I couldn't feed you meat, I had to feed you milk, because you were babes. Men can eat strong meat, babies can't eat anything but milk. These people were simply immature. They hadn't grown up in Jesus Christ. You know, babies are, they are real neat. Once they get over that initial ugliness, they are real neat characters. They're lovely, beautiful, uh, completely open. They're uh, not uh, hypocritical. They're just real nice people. But you know what? The things that we look at in a baby and see as being precious, in an adult... It's much less than precious, to say the least. We, and our little baby isn't here, the one that was born in New Zealand. She was, when she was a baby, we used to get the biggest kick out of her, as well as all the others, but she had to have her feeding, you know, immediately. And we'd put her in the chair. Boy, we knew when it was time to do it, put her in that thing, you know, that sits her there and strapped her in and got her all ready. And then her, my wife would get the stuff all ready and mixed up, and then she'd get ready and get the spoon just right, and then she would just go like that. And if she missed a lick, if she happened to drop the spoon or get, boy, that little old baby girl would just start screaming and crying because somebody had missed a lick. She didn't get what was coming to her. She probably needed something else that was coming to her, but she didn't, and she got some of that too. She used to sit on the floor and just bang her head if she didn't get her way. She'd sit on the floor, lean all the way over, and just wham, bang that head right on the floor. We never thought that was cute. But at least we understood that perhaps she'll grow out of it. And we warped her frame many a time. But we didn't take her to a psychologist or a psychiatrist. We knew that it was because she was a baby. But you take an 18-year-old or a 20-year-old or a 40-year-old who, when everything doesn't just come right at him on time that belongs to him, and he sits there on the floor and bangs his head, it's time to take that fellow to see a head doctor. He's, he's got trouble. That was the kind of the way these people were here. They were babies. They had milk anemia. We had another boy, another child of ours, had milk anemia. He was about uh, two years old, and, man, he could drink a cow dry. I mean, he'd literally drink it up. And we were just so proud of him, you know, we'd say, watch him. Look at him drink that milk. Man, he's just getting big, you know. And the doctor examined him one time and said, you better stop that baby from drinking all milk. Get him off of it immediately. He's got milk anemia, and he's going to die. If you don't get him off that milk. I wish the Lord could look at some of us Christians today and see what he thinks of us. Milk anemia, I'm afraid he'd have. I got a letter from a young lady this past week, same letter a minute ago I was telling you about, and she was so concerned because of the fact that the people there had milk anemia. She said they're being fed milk constantly without any meat at all, and we're just disturbed and distressed over it. What about you? What about all of you? How long have you been a Christian? What is your background? At least you can understand, these Corinthians came out of a bad background. They came out of an evil, sensual, and a background with bad habits. And it's hard to break bad habits. How many of you have cursed? Some of you come like these Corinthians. You've cursed, you've sworn, you've been sexually immoral, you have been promiscuous, you've been all of these things wrapped up in one, and you come like these people, and your attitudes are bad... You don't have the proper attitude to get along with your roommate or with the administration or with your teachers or with your friends. You don't have the right attitude. And the majority of the people who respond and come forward, you know what they say? 
I have caused other people to stumble. I have offended my brothers and sisters. That's the majority of what's said when they come forward. What you're saying is that you're immature. You have wrong attitudes. You have bad habits. These Corinthians, I want you to notice this, their immaturity was evident and showed up because of what they were doing. They hadn't become any different from what they were before they became Christians. And the reason why Paul says they were babies and immature was something that they were doing. And so many times that's the case with you and me today. I think my immaturity, is, as it existed long ago and perhaps as it continues, it may involve some of these things that we were doing. I know back then it was. Maybe it's changed today. But what about you? Are you a baby? Are you hard to live with? You wives, do you have a tongue that is so sharp and so uh, indiscriminate and so... that you just literally disrupt the peace of the family and you destroy the unity of the home? Are you someone that somebody has to walk around on eggshells and just go real easy, you know, to keep from upsetting the apple cart and you blow off at the leaf? Let me tell you something. You're less than a woman if that's the way you live your life. You husbands, does the wife have to just kowtow and bow down to you, you know, and just keep everything smooth and everything just so and, and come at your beck and call and all, or else you go off and sulk and you pout and you... I'll tell you what, as Terry said yesterday, last, uh, this past week, you're less than a man. You're a baby. You're a little baby. You need your diapers changed. You need to go be taken out and help. You need to be put to bed and given a bottle. Why don't you grow up? Those of you young men and young women, if your roommate can't live with you, and if all of this is happening and you are sexually immoral, you're loose in your conduct. As Brother Smith said, you're less than a man and you're less than a woman. Christian immaturity is the one thing that plagues this community, but it's not unusual. It's the one thing that plagues most communities. Oh, but you say, I'm not like that. No, sir. I'm not sexually immoral. And I've got a very sweet disposition. In fact, I'm very proud of myself. I'm really a wonderful person to get to know. Well, then let me tell you about the Hebrews. These were the contemporaries of the Corinthians. And I'm not going to do this except in very brief form. The Hebrews were different in their background. Man, they had ancestry. They had blood. They had pedigree. They had this long list of ancestry that they could trace it back, you know. They were sons of somebody, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had Bible teaching that no second could come close to it. They had everything going for them. And they were the ones of whom the Christ had come. They had the worship and the services and the promises and the inheritance and all of this that belonged to these people. And yet they were not any better described as far as their position before God than these heathen and the pagan and the adulterers and the homosexuals and all of these others. They were all called the church of God. In Hebrews 3.1, he says, Holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. Well, that's not any better than what he said to the Corinthians. No, because it wasn't what they were before conversion that made them this. It's what God made them. This was their identity. But you know what? They had the same problem that the Corinthians had. They were babies. In Hebrews 5.11, it says you're dull of hearing. Dull of hearing. You know what that means? Or oh, it means that you're really kind of bored with the whole thing. It means that, and this may be a reflection on the sermon, and it very well may be that, but you get to the point where you think, 
Oh, me, well, I wish I were somewhere else. I really don't, I just don't really care for all this. Dull of hearing. But then he said they were also dull of teaching. They couldn't teach anybody. He said, when by reason of time you ought to be teachers, you have need that somebody come and teach you again the first principles of God. Dull of teaching. But they were also dull of appetite. They had this milk anemia I was talking about. They didn't have any real appetite for the Word of God. They had kind of dwindled away. They had gotten their stomach had shrunk. I remember when I was in Lipscomb. My stomach shrank that year because of the food, because of the food in the, in the cafeteria. You've got it made here. Patty Cobb is absolutely the Waldorf Astoria compared to the school where I went and the food that we had back there. We felt slighted if in our green beans there was not a caterpillar that long every week. And I'll tell you what, I went through those beans like this every week to make sure that I didn't get meat in my beans. And we ate so little over there. Actually, my stomach shrank. I couldn't eat much because I almost starved myself with that food. These people were like that. He also says, you're dull in exercise. Listen to the statement that he made. When by reason of time you ought to be teachers, you have need that someone teach you the First principles of God's Word. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone that lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he's a child. Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their faculties trained by practice. One reason why people can't play tennis is they don't practice. The other reason why we can't play is because we don't have any talent. But most people just don't practice. They don't get the stroke down. These people didn't practice their Christianity. How much are you practicing your Christianity? Oh, I fly off the handle. How long have you been practicing staying on the handle? Practice, practice, practice. They were dull of hearing. They were dull of eating. They were dull of appetite. They were dull of practice. They were dull of discernment. He said, you can't discern between right and wrong. How many of you have said, well, I don't see anything wrong in that? Perhaps you don't. But all that says is that you're blind, perhaps. Dull of practice, dull of... Discernment, dull of exercise, dull of appetite, dull of teaching, dull of hearing. The whole thing, you could write over it, blah. They were just dull. Dullville, Dullville, Israel is what they would have been called. They were babies. He says, you're not man, grown men, you're babies.